0: It's, it's interesting, I, I know you um, f- from UC Berkeley, we were, I was an undergraduate when uh, you were getting your PhD, and mm-hmm. it was kind of an amazing year for PhD students uh, and students of Burt Dreyfus. This podcast is called Being in the World um, in Homage to Burt Dreyfus, so it's really nice to have you here uh, with that more obvious tie-in. Sometimes it's being in the world more generally, just what it's like to be in the world. Uh, but sometimes it doesn't it's specific. Ex- it
1: doesn't exclude much.
0: No, exactly. Yeah. But sometimes it's specific to Heidegger and Bert Dreyfus and right. that, that, you know, and I made a film called Being in the World, but, uh, you know, his students, all I'm hearing. breathing.
1: You're hearing yeah. me breathing.
0: Yeah, it's really kind of. And you'd rather
1: hear me using my breath to make articulate syllables than just the breath. Okay, got it. (laughs) I can roll with that.
0: Um, There was um, there was it was kind of an all star year at vindicating Bert Dreyfus because so many of his students went on to these very prestigious positions. Uh, Sean Kelly was my TA at the time, and now he's chairman of the philosophy department at Harvard. Um, Mark Rathall is at at Oxford, and then you've gone on to the, have this illustrious career that we'll talk more about. Um, and there's an interesting th- tie-in between you and Mark, because I consider you both by any standard um, uh, smarter than me and smarter than most people, and also sympathetic to religion, in Mark's case, uh, he's a very religious person. And, um, you know, I think a lot of people on the kind of progressive left are a little bit dismissive of religion, of religious institutions, in the way they've wielded power, in the the veracity of any religious beliefs. And yet there are some very, you know, by again, by any measure, clever people who think that there's value in religious belief. Um, how do you kind of frame that? Your kind of rational side with your, uh, openness to religion? Is that too huge of a question?
1: No, I wish it were huger. I wish it were huger. It's a perfectly good sized question. So the question is, how do I frame it? Well, One way I would frame it is if you were trying to create a set of practices that would allow a group of human beings to flourish for millennia and you didn't know what was going to come down the pike. You know what I mean? You didn't know whether they would be able to keep a highly technological civilization. You didn't know what sort of wars or epidemics would challenge them. I think it would make sense to formulate whatever you think is important in terms that appeal to people along, uh, it appeals to all aspects of people. Their imagination, their um, self-interest, their um, love of moving their bodies, uh, how they like to eat—you'd want to, you'd want to put whatever you want to convey, whatever legacy you would like to leave to your human descendants, two, three, eight, fifty, a hundred thousand. 900,000 4 million 8 million 30 trillion years down the line you'd want to put it in a package so that it would keep going and it would be it would it wouldn't it wouldn't engage people just on a limited part of themselves you'd want to engage their bodies and their emotions and their imagination so i think you'd end up founding a religion well i mean the best word for that would be a religion um now have many of those things been lousy Of course like w- why wouldn't they be like like that's a weird that's a weird um
0: like, but what do you mean like I'm not gonna say be? what? Why wouldn't what do you mean why why are you so forgiving of why wouldn't they be? Why couldn't they be better?
1: They could be better, but that doesn't mean that it does, we shouldn't expect most of them to be pretty subpar. I mean, half of everything people do is below average, statistically, right? <laughs> yeah. So most art is lousy. Most most relationships are lousy. I mean, most times, but I'm not going to say there should be no art and there should be no love because most art and love is, is pretty, you know, substandard. I, I wouldn't. I mean, maybe other people have higher standards than me, and, and then they, they're, you know, God bless them, you know?
0: but i guess i guess again the case against religion is is that it seems by its very nature to have this lasting quality it has to be resistant to change right
1: yeah well except for like i suppose you could also so that's an ar- that's not an argument about a religion that i think that is an argument about conservatism versus
0: change you don't think religion is by its nature conservative
1: no not really I mean I, if you look at um, uh, the opposition to slavery in uh, in uh, America that was religious I think religion. I think what religion is, is it's um it's potent it's a potent force for manipulating people so therefore people who like to keep things the way they are will be well advised to buy themselves some priests but they buy themselves some artists too but then also people who would like to shake things up they'll probably try and buy themselves some priests and some artists and I mean that's the way of the world I mean if you've got a species that functions differently cool maybe (laughs) are they accepting applications you know that's, that would be cool too if there's some species that doesn't have religion or politics or art and they do things differently. Maybe they're doing it better. I don't know.
0: But, like, so if we put religion in one camp mm-hmm. and then we put, you know, uh, science and philosophy in another camp, um, I think a lot of people who are against religion would maybe put themselves in the science and philosophy camp because they say the nature of the approach to figuring out what are we doing here how should we live um, is informed by something that's uh, maybe more flexible more uh, responsive to logic and reality and you know might be under again I'm, i'm sympathetic i think that my predisposition is to be questioning and to be, you know, anti authoritarian and rebellious. So I'm more sympathetic to the, I tend to be more sympathetic to the anti religion people, but yet there's people who I really admire, like you and Mark, who um, I think have thought through these issues in a really deep and interesting way and landed in an unexpected place. And with Mark, it's, it's particularly kind of jarring and unexpected because he's a Mormon and that's the religion in some ways that's easiest to dismiss by the anti-religion people for all sorts of reasons we don't need to get into, but I think that are pretty obvious to most people.
1: I guess if I wanted to play this game that you're playing of camps, Mm -hmm. I would put myself in the anti-camp camp camp because I find the anti-religious people are very much like what I dislike about the religious people. Right. So I find, any anytime I find a, a, a pair of social movements defined by mutual contempt and antagonism, I find that funny and I want to take a step back and see if there's a way that I can not join either side. Um and that's sort of what I feel like sometimes when you we were talking the other day when we were going for a walk about America in the fifties and that you had some kinda of, you had the squares and the hipsters. And the squares were clearly not gonna be hipsters and the hipsters spent all their time doing art that showed how foolish the squares were. And I don't wanna play that game. I'm too busy. I, I've got too many other things to do. I don't wanna be involved in any situation where Everybody gets around is like today we're going to make fun of the religious people because they're so foolish. I don't want to be on that team and there's well, uh, people need to get with God because if they're not, uh, that's terrible. I don't want to be with them either. They all sound tiresome.
0: but yeah to finish my thought about about Mark, I've found unexpectedly that that people who are so-called progressives are way more. Like knee-jerk dismissive about the possibility of someone who's smart and thoughtful. Uh, What's your like good religious. about being
1: smart? What's this fetishizing of being smart? I think smart can get you in real trouble. I mean, it. I it's, fetishize
0: it for sure. Oh well, cut it out,
1: Tao. Let's. If we can do one thing with this podcast, y- you should think about multiple intelligences and stop fetishizing being smart. How did you start to do that?
0: Because, Where did that come from? Yeah, yeah. No, this is something, and, and, and this is apropos because. Uh again, these people that I've I've gravitated towards at Berkeley when we met, like Bert Dreyfus and 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 all the, the students we've talked about, um came from learning my I came from a family with no education, neither of my parents even finished high school. Uh-huh. Um, and I found uh, solace and fascination in books early on. I was kind of awkward as a child and and uh then when i landed at berkeley uh finding a bunch of people who also got excited about ideas that weren't necessarily the most pressing or the most practical but could spend time thinking about obscure philosophical issues just got me really turned on and and now the the result is i get i fetishize people who have like higher education from fancy schools like you do and then you who have that it's like the beautiful person saying oh why do we fetishize beauty okay um it's 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 fascinating i think when brains seem to uh work in interesting and so what, uh, what was ways. it
1: what you, so you're uneducated parents what what put you on opposite sides of issues like you your education you're you're an educated son of uh, uneducated parents like how did how well, did that play up in your life?
0: They taught themselves in really great ways, and actually, they were, I think i I did it if insofar as this might be inherited, i, I they did have uh, a, a lot of intellectual curiosity and just didn't have the institutional uh, you know, m- m- my my mother, who I'm sure will be listening to this um, High had, mother. <laughs> was very uh, rebellious youth and didn't like the, the, uh, didn't like the kind of structure and hierarchy of the school system and rebelled against it. But she definitely has philosophical curiosity as well. And, and her father, uh, went from being a, He was a good student and went to Columbia and, and studied engineering and, and, but he rebelled against all that and thought that people shouldn't go to school and was a kind of typical 1960s, Mm -hmm. uh, anti authoritarian, anti establishment dude who, who, who bought a house and took all the locks off the doors and asked, you know, invited anyone to come in and his seven year old son came home one day and said, I don't want to go to school anymore. And he said, okay, then don't. And Uh he let him stay home for a year until he decided that he wanted to go to school. Your uncle. Yeah.
1: So was your dad, was he anti education? He was like, Tao, get your nose out of that book and come be in the real world. No,
0: my my dad loved, he read Nietzsche. He read, like, he loved philosophy, but he grew up during World War II and mm-hmm. that, with his mother died when he was nine and his father was, you know, fascist. And oh, no. he just, uh, in Italy in the 40s. Uh, so he just hated all of uh, it. These types of uh, oppressive institutions, religious—you know—imagine the Catholic Church, right. Mussolini, uh, school—all of it was uh, was was something to rebel against. So I think I actually, I actually. Um, I was in an unusual situation where my parents were more rebellious than I was, and I rebelled How by embracing rebel yeah. <laughs> by embracing the structure and I think you know children do long for some sort of yes. like constancy and structure yes. and for me again, I found solace and uh in the the uh yeah the hierarchy of of the school uh kind of the institution because i didn't find it oppressive i found it liberating in a way yeah
1: look i think um there's so i'm kind of a a self-taught person and and i i always had a lot of mixed feelings about educational institutions in a sense because i was too idealistic for them and anytime i would be like Encountering any real life constraints of running an educational institution, it would it would chafe my hide. Um, so a lot of this, my love of philosophy, I kind of came to it self taught, um, and that's why. I mean, actually in college, I uh, I majored in comparative religion because I found the philosophy department had too many rules for me, and I didn't want to I didn't want to listen to their rules. I mean, yeah. so I think so. Uh, what, I'll just say, what I like about um, learning is it's, it's a non-violent way of social interaction. Because it teaches us to say, I don't hate you, I hate this idea that you're espousing. And I think that's really good. That's a real good development in the human race that we can say, I don't hate you, I hate the idea that you're espousing. And then we can judge that idea on its merits. I think that that poses a way towards us being able to cooperate on a better way of living without hating each other's guts. and And that helps us, and it also helps our descendants because we're more likely to work together and do something worthwhile than than like stab each other.
0: <laughs> so <laughs> aren't know? so 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 aren't like the religious institutions vestiges of that past? That's not what you're talking about. Like if we want to be on the side of tolerance of new ideas, it's not doesn't seem to be in in the realm in the domain of religion these days.
1: Yeah, maybe not. Maybe religion has outlived its usefulness.
0: And 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 how do you uh, do you practice or Do you have religious beliefs? Well,
1: I I kind of assemble like a a grab bag of religious texts and non-religious texts uh, and practices that I like. Um, So, I mean, I'm Jewish, so I'm a Jew, but...
0: Do you practice... uh, Jewish um religious rituals yeah yeah I practice
1: Jewish religious rituals I do
0: yeah and is is your Jewish identity important to you
1: yeah yeah it is important to me it is important to me I mean I mean it's not it depends on the context you know and and if if we were ever if I was give ever given a choice between like being a good person or being a Jew I'd always pick being a good person and I wouldn't say that's because you're a good Jew maybe 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 yeah and and it, and you know if god appeared to me and said on this side is judaism and on this side is me i would go with god i wouldn't go with judaism uh, at all but but you, you know i sometimes listen to a podcast which i do recommend you know to first of all to your mom and then to you and then to your listeners called um the study of religion podcast and one of the things that they do because they're all they're all academics coming out of Scotland to study religion. Is they they point out that um, the very category of religion is relatively recent, and it like whoever wrote the Bible did not use the concept of religion. Um, the 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 whoever founded the christian church didn't use the concept of religion buddhists and taoists certainly didn't use the concept of religion so so i think if if you realize that and then you sort of think well what are we talking about then i think you can get out of this two camps model which i think is wrong honestly i think if you because if you want to say huh I'm interested in those times, this is Kierkegaardian definition of faith, is like those times people make a huge bet on something that they're never going to be able to, they're never going to get enough data to figure out if it was the right bet. Like like they sacrificed their life or they lived their whole life following a certain approach and they're never going to get enough data to know if that was the right way to do it. So that's what he means by faith. So that's interesting, and you can say, well, that probably shows up in all kinds of places unexpectedly. Certainly scientists, progressive politicians, they do that. And then, like, well, what else is religion? Durkheim says it's this way that um, people can kind of get together in a group and and find something, some kind of external symbol of their group identity a lot of people do that in all kind of contexts. Football fans, you know. So, so I think to me, to me, like, which is better, religion or anti-religion? Uh, I, that seems to me like the sort of question that might well generate more heat than light. So, I would prefer to replace it with the grab bag of things that we think of when we talk about religion. And I would say, I'll just like they, those those two making a giant bet that you cannot quite justify and, uh, symbolizing your emotional group membership. Those are two. What do we think about them? Are there ways to Wait, do can them? Can you unpack good? the
0: former a little bit more? What What are you betting on? In, when you, in, Well, in your I guess what I'm thinking
1: about is supposing somebody says, um, I'm trying to think of a, of a not...
0: Don't make an sentence. example of someone else. Make I would like about you. What, oh, okay.
1: What... I'll make an example of me. So, I'm a father, and I decided to have children, and it was quite important to me. That's very important to me, and it really determines many things about my life and my death. Um... I can't prove to anybody that that's the right choice. Uh, I I have faith that that's a good. I mean, that's the word I would use. Look, since we're talking about religion, but I'm making a giant bet. <laughs> I'm 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 putting all my money on fatherhood, and literally money. I mean, it's it's quite expensive, but but also you know more intangible uh, commitments of mine are all constellated around this. I mean a choice sounds a little bit too too voluntaristic, but let's call it choice for lack of a better word the choice to be a father um that's a form of faith now I could say uh, i I believe um you know I'm a dream in the mind of Vishnu I could say um God is a father who somehow, as an individual <laughs> father, created the world, even though it's kind of hard to figure out how that would work. I could see um, it's nothing but vibrations. I just, The reality is nothing but vibrations. Um, so I could, I could make various cognitive metaphysical claims about reality, and you could say, well, the first two are definitely religious, and the third is irreligious. Um, I, I, sure, that's true but um to my way of thinking the the kind of making a big choice that you can't justify is the more interesting question and and some of the the sort of grand programmatic metaphysical statements you then might be tempted to make are almost like icing on the cake i don't know that, that's a little too reductive but but i do i guess i think those are two very important questions and they're separable <laughs> i don't want to say that one is unimportant but i will say that they're separable Um, So I'm being nominalist here. I'm just sort of like, uh, oh, there's this big thing, religion, and is it good or bad? And I'm more tempted to say, well, there probably isn't a big thing called religion. And the fact that there isn't a big thing called religion is why people can get very emotional about whether it's good or bad. Uh, There's a bunch of people who claim to be religious, and most of them are a mixture of good and bad. And, And then if you want to make the statistical claim that in America today, if you attend a church... Are you more likely to be a knuckle-dragging conservative than if you don't? That might well be true. I don't know. I'm not a sociologist of America. It, if you turn on TV, it certainly seems that the people making outward shows of their religiosity tend to be pretty horrible. Um, but that could change. Or maybe it just means... I, I mean, that makes makes me want to ask the question whether, like, um, you know, TikTok witches... Are they, because I'd imagine TikTok witches are probably pretty progressive. Do you want to call it
0: What's them? a TikTok witch?
1: Well, it's somebody who's a, a young, usually a, 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 usually not a male, um, a non-binary or female person who believes in Wicca and does um, hexes and other kind of Wiccan ceremonies. And and they I'm calling them TikTok because you see them on TikTok. But they're okay. not, they're not, they don't only exist on TikTok. That's just a, a medium through which they express themselves. So I don't know, or let's just say witches, because maybe that's slightly pejorative to call them TikTok witches, although it kind of rolled off the tongue. But witches, are witches a religion? Probably, right? If anything's a religion, witches are probably a religion. Or are they not a religion?
0: I haven't thought enough enough about it. Okay,
1: well I would say they're a religion, they're just a uh, a new non-mainstream religion, Mm -hmm. if anything is. So they're pretty progressive. I don't know. I don't know if you you want to say that, like, if somebody says, um, I love the earth so much that I will chain myself to a tree and die before they cut down that tree because the earth is sacred. So like a, a radical eco person. I think by any academically respectable definition of religion, that's a religion. Yeah. or we shouldn't have it or we should stop using the word entirely which is what the study of religion people say they they just say this is a bad word it's confusing let's stop using it
0: and and how do you identify as progressive or left wing and do you think that category is useful
1: yeah i identify as progressive and i think that category is useful it helps you know which side to take <laughs>
0: So sides are, do in they exist case, in yeah. politics?
1: Yeah, I think, I think when there are victims being attacked, you need to defend them. And sort of you're forced to take a side because of the nature of what's happening.
0: What's the nature of what's happening?
1: Of oh, victims being attacked. I mean, let's take an example like, um, uh, whatever, they're, they're they're beating up and shaming trans people. It's like, well, that's not cool. So we need to defend those trans people, or, or the.
0: Um... So do you think? Do you think what divides the conservatives from the progressives is being on the side of the victims versus being versus being on the side of the attackers? Yeah. And do I, do you think that it's a shame that that religious people, we've allowed the people on the side of the oppressors to kind of co-opt religion? No,
1: oh, it's terrible. It's terrible. Um, but that's, I think that's this real problem, which is um, you can always hire lawyers. You can always hire priests. You can hire artists, too. It's a shame. Or you also scare them. It's very difficult not to be a collaborator in this world, I think. Like, it, in your fantasies, it's easy not to be a collaborator. But in real life, it's hard. Because um, um, you're like, I like America. America's pretty terrific. And then uh, you know, America gets conquered by Martians, and then you you first of all, you want to live, you'd like your family to live. The only jobs are being offered by Martians. Um, it's tough. I mean, it's admirable when people are able to um like like there's many more people promoting martyr martyrdom than martyring themselves, and that's that's interesting. that's an interesting datum, you know.
0: And, and 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 speaking of your Jewish identity, it, there's kind of a. There, there used to be a, a kind of solidarity, almost built into Jewish identity with left wing and progressive yeah, because we're original religion of the,
1: slaves. What happened to that? A, it seems yeah, to have
0: like gone by the wayside. Yeah, well, way. it hasn't.
1: Um, I'm actually on the board of directors of a organization called Amor. Which is a progressive anti-Zionist um, uh, Jewish uh, group. Um, it's connected with Rabbi Jill Jacobs as a group group called uh, Teruah and Rabbis for Human Rights. I shouldn't say anti-Zionist. That's probably wrong. But it's a non-Zionist group. It's not. It's not a. Uh, it 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 is not committed to the truth of Zionism. Um, what happened? Well. One thing that happened was many Jews got assimilated into America and it became became sort of a devil's bargain like to be accepted by the American power structure and then I also think there was there was a certain um messianic, uh, I would say, idolatrous approach to the creation of the State of Israel, which got a lot of people confused. Now, it was an understandable confusion, because the Holocaust was so terrible, Um, and a lot of Jewish identity got um, tied up with the Holocaust, and the notion of never letting it happen again, which I agreed with, But I think never letting it happen again means never letting ethno-nationalistic genocide happen. Never let people mistake their humanity for a particular racial identity. Um, That's what I think should never happen again. Not specifically Jews, whatever they are, whatever we are, shouldn't be pushed around. but, But nobody should pursue a politics based upon... The superior of their superiority of their bloodline over someone else's bloodline—that's what should never happen again. Is actually, you know, i never it
0: happening again.
1: All the time, yeah.
0: Is it happening again by the very victims? Sadly, yeah,
1: yeah. There are there are um, people in Israeli politics and Jewish politics who think that to be Jewish is is somehow better. And and that's a terrible misunderstanding of Judaism, and and they should cut it out, if any of them are listening. <laughs> um. So. So yeah, where where were we? Oh yeah, I was interesting. It was interesting. I I'm listening to uh, Tim Snyder's podcast about uh, Ukraine, and so I've never read Hitler um, because because, um, you know, I, I'm not a fan of his life, or so why should I read his books? But, but it turns out that Hitler had this view that um, uh, nature wants races to fight. And the only reason that there's any kind of movement where races don't fight is because of the bewitchment on the part of Jews who have this supernatural way of tricking people into thinking that there's more to life than racial conflict. And I was like, thanks man. That's, that's a kind of a nice story. I mean, I, I I would flip the values on it. Like you, like you think, and that means Jews are bad, but I would say that if that, and if, I mean, it's absurd. I'm, I'm it's clearly not a Jewish invention. That idea is lunacy. He was a bad man. Um, bad thinker, bad person. Um, but, but the, the Hitler's idea that, um, there's two sides and one side are the people who say there's nothing but, um, races fighting for survival and murdering each other. And the other side saying, ah, I don't know, maybe there's other stuff. I'm on the second side and it's flattering and nice that he identified it with Judaism. I think it's, it's it's incorrect. I wouldn't give him a good grade, but but I think that the notion that there's more to life than my particular bloodline fighting and murdering yours is a good one. It's a it's a great it's a great point. Like I like it. I endorse it.
0: And just to bring it back to um, your identity as a Jew and as a progressive person in politics, I, I I like this kind of reclaiming of those two identities as a voice for progressiveness. Uh, 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 how can I frame this? Never mind. I I I think we've we've uh, we've tackled that. Uh, that domain in an interesting way we can unpack it in a lot of ways but yard line i wonder but but i I actually want to go back to where we back two steps to the the fetishization of intelligence and of institutional learning because i rediscovered your uh work a little bit um by first of all i was a big fan of you on twitter and i'm sad that you left twitter because eric was one of my favorite users of that medium um but then i found i looked you up on youtube and i found this talk you gave at harvard at your alma mater Mm -hmm. talking about the this very thing the fetishization of this you know going to harvard and then going to get your phd in philosophy and how you were then pulled between that Identity versus going and being successful in in television, and you you kind of gave a great talk about what part of your personality you have to respond to, to uh, prioritize or privilege one of those mm-hmm. uh, paths versus the other, and the 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 shame that yeah. the intellectual you yeah, I felt, felt. Embarrassed, it's true. You were embarrassed to leave your PhD program. Yeah,
1: and I was embarrassed to give that talk actually.
0: Yeah. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? The the talk is something about like why philosophy matters. And it's, if you just put Eric Kaplan, uh, Harvard, you'll see the talk and you grapple with this issue head on. And I'd love to, since, since you talked about me fetishizing this, I think it's apropos and, and would be worth.
1: Yeah. Well, I guess, um, I, I think, I think there's no way that you could create a thing or a belief that couldn't be twisted towards evil. I don't think there's any belief or opinion or institution that has that kind of breaks built into it. Um, so... I think I was feeling very, very guilty because I thought, well, reading books and writing, that's, that's a noble kind of thing to do because that's, that's got its, you've got your eyes on the ideal and trying to be a writer and TV, that's, that's a money grubbing ignoble thing to do. And I was embarrassed that I had done the comparatively less noble thing. Um, and I don't look at it that way anymore. I, I think I, I had my wires crossed in certain ways emotionally.
0: Well, can you tell me what happened narratively? Like, cause when, when we met, you were on your way to getting a PhD in philosophy, yes. being the person who dedicates their life to writing and reading. And then I graduated next thing. I knew you were doing really well in TV. What happened in between? How did that, how did well, that happen?
1: Well, I got married and... While you were a grad student? Yes. And it sort of two things happened. One, I became nervous about ever being able to get a job as a professor. I thought, I don't know if I'll ever be able to get a job as a professor. I was just nervous and anxious. I'm a sort of nervous person, I guess. And then the other thing was... I started to to crave more impact, and I I was thinking, wouldn't it be more fun, and and just wouldn't I feel more um, zesty if I was writing things that people watched and and cared about, rather than just something like a like a book that. You know, only nine people read, although they were very smart people and serious people. And, 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 I, and that that tempted me um, or or I shouldn't say tempted because that makes it sound like, like it was bad. Uh, that exhilarated me. I thought the idea of connecting in an imaginative way with millions of people, there was something exhilarating about it. And also I was afraid I wasn't actually going to get a job as a professor. Because I remember at some point, um, I think I said to Hans Sluga, or it might have been somebody else, but oh, a professor it, in, professor? in the, at the department. And I said, ah, I cannot wait until I'm done getting letters of recommendation. Because it feels like thought control. Like the idea that my philosophy has to be normal enough and orthodox enough that someone will write me a letter of recommendation. I can't wait to to throw off those shackles and really start to say what I really think. And the professor said, oh, you silly boy. Don't you know that as professors, we're constantly getting letters of re- recommendation. If you want to stay on your tenure track, you need to get 16 letters from professors at your level. And then if you want to get the next point, you need to get 25 six letters. I don't, I'm making up the numbers to be funny, but the point is the principle is, is the principle is very serious, which is, um, y- how uh, you, you have to, y- y- how, how free can your thought be if you need to get 24 people doing the same thing you are to say that it's worth something? Uh, I think it can. I mean, it seems to me that, that like, Nietzsche could not have gotten those numbers of letters of recommendation. Kierkegaard couldn't have, um, Frege couldn't have, I don't think. Uh, so, so to me, not, not to say I'm, I'm belonging in that August company, but at least I aspired to it. And the idea that I would have to deal with those, um, those constraints, uh, sobered me. It kind of sobered me on thinking, oh, to be a philosophy professor isn't really the same as being a philosopher. It, it's it's getting a job, and it has all the institutional constraints of any job. Now you might say that's really naive that you were surprised by that, and I will have to plead guilty on that one. I think I was an, an exceptionally naive person when we first met.
0: And so what happened? How did your how how were you cured of that naivete?
1: Oh. I think, you know, just the way of the world, you know, just, just keeping my eyes open and interacting with people and but, caring what happened, about you, things.
0: You haven't told me what happened. So you, how, how did you end up dropping out of the PhD oh, program to get the TV? Job? Okay.
1: So the, the blow by blow is I w I went down to San Diego to watch the I think it was the Oscars with my friend Dan Graney who was a writer on the Simpsons and he had known me when I was uh, I mean still knows we're friends I mean but we had met each other on the Harvard Lampoon he was a president when I got on and he was like you know you could totally do this and I was like really and he said yeah so that kind of made me think oh if I can if I could be a professional television writer it's something I'd like to give a try um and I had, take, I had passed my oral exam, and I was sort of wrestling with what my dissertation topic could be. And I think part of my naivete was I was finding it very difficult to come up with a dissertation topic because I thought my dissertation had to, like, simultaneously solve all problems in philosophy. So that was challenging to come up with a dissertation that could do that. Um,
0: and obviously you had a, a, some sort of relationship to humor at, already, writing for the Lampoon, and... And philosophy is kind of distinctly unfunny, isn't it? Academic philosophy. Yeah,
1: I mean, yeah, I did have a relationship to humor. I was a, a comical character.
0: Um, did you think? Uh, do you th- Just a little detour here. Yeah, do you yeah. think humor is is a philosophical enterprise, or can? Well, be? I,
1: whatever. I think. I sure. I mean, I think. I think. Um, What's the nature of humor? Philosophy is is uh, uh, is geist coming to consciousness of itself as geist. So I think uh, any activity, if you do it uh, self reflectively, can be philosophical. I think humor is well set. You know, as opposed to like, um, I don't know, like being a prison guard. You know, like humor has a self-reflectivity and a and a and an attraction to paradox and contradiction built into it, and and a sort of attraction to the unsettled and the anxious, and the and the off-putting, it is what humor is responding to. Uh, it's the phenomenon that humor is responding to is some sense of that. We're not quite at home in this situation. Something about the world is leaving us flat-footed, and if it's an unusually deep joke, it could be about some very fundamental nature of our life is leaving us flat-footed or confused or, or ambivalent. Um, so yes, <laughs> I, the way I think that, that is a long-winded way of saying yes. Um, what should we talk about now?
0: Well, I, I, I li- I'm, I'm, I'm. S- very loosely following the uh the contours of your oh
1: my switch of your right. switch <laughs> so what happened was so the point was i had i had done everything uh to get my phd but write my dissertation and i thought why don't i take a year and put because the, there was no hard cl- clock ticking why don't i take a year and see if i can get um a job in tv Um, so I started writing my writing samples and sending them around and the funny thing was I was a TA for, um, John Searle's philosophy of mind and, and the first job that I was offered, um, was, it was a good job. It was starting out and it was for a show that turned out to be very successful And this was sort of my first taste of, like, that people in in Hollywood behave differently than people in academia, because...
0: Not so much. It turns out with John Searle, though.
1: Oh, okay. That's true. That's true. uh, Shame on him. Um, So, uh, that's terrible. And I don't want to make light of that with a joke. We could return to that. Um, But just to to tell this story, Um, he... um, Okay, you got the job. Report to work on Monday, and I was like, I can't report to work because I need to, I need to um, prepare my students for their a final exam, so I can report to work in two weeks. And the guy was like, Either cut out the philosophy bullshit and report to work on Monday, or I'm giving this job to someone else. What was the job? I'm, I'm not going to say. I'm okay. deliberately hiding the identity of the people. Okay. Um. And. Um. Yeah, where was I? So, he was so, dismissive. Yeah, yeah. So he said, "So I said, I'm sorry. Then I can't take the job. Um, because I, I sort of felt like I can't, I can't leave the relationships in such a crappy way. I didn't want to do that. Um, and I'm glad it was a hard decision, but I'm glad I didn't say to all my students, "So long, suckers. I'm, I've got a job in TV. Good luck figuring out the mind-body problem." Uh, on your own. Uh, I thought that would be wrong. Um, so, so I passed on that and then I ended up my first job, my, my, uh, my wife was studying in New York. So I wanted to have a job in New York. Um, and I ended up getting a job at David Letterman. And then I said to my, my professors, Hey, I think I'm not going to do my PhD any my dissertation anytime soon. And, and, and in my mind, they would, they were thinking like, Oh. That's shocking or something like that. But I bet they weren't. I bet they were just thinking, "Well, that's one less person we need to worry about placing." You know, it's one less person we need to find a job for. Phew. Good. Um so 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 I did that, and then at some point I was on Big Bang Theory and I had an enviable degree of job security, and I had t- kept in touch with Bert Dreyfus over the years. Um and I'd actually published a popular philosophy book called "Does Santa Exist?" Um so I, I so I kind of said, Bert, do you think I could get my PhD? And he said, I think you should, and and yes, and and he agreed to be my advisor. and And, and I wrote a dissertation actually on the concept of the funny in Kierkegaard. It was actually funny because in a, in the other sense of funny, um, I was initially writing just a book about what is funny, not a book, but a a, a uh, dissertation. And the other members of the committee were like, You can't just say what's funny. I mean that's not I was just doing a phenomenology of humor and then and then I suddenly thought okay what I should do is find the what I believe to be true about funny in a writer and write it about that writer and it turned out to be Kierkegaard and and I, I'm saying this facetiously but not really because the view I had of Funny was true and Kierkegaard was very good at his job, he had the right view too <laughs> He had gotten there before me, you know. Um, so I was able to say, "Hey, the correct view of of what f- comedy is is A, B, and C." And here it is in Kierkegaard and the concluding on scientific postscript. And that was my dissertation. And now I have a PhD in philosophy. I also have a I have a podcast I'm doing now with Taylor Carmen, "Who's a, a Real Philosophy Professor," and it's called uh, "Terrifying Questions and Why We Should Not Be" or uh, "Terrifying Questions and How Not to Be Terrified by Them." And it's out. It's going to launch March eighth.
0: Okay, wait, but before we get to the yes. the self plug, okay. I've got I've got more to dissect here. Yeah, yeah, here. yeah. Um, uh, because we were talking about we were walking around. We're in Bombay Beach, California mm-hmm, now, mm-hmm. and you said something yesterday as we were walking around about how you know in in the TV world there's there's maybe ostensibly some art, but there's this you know uh, other. Uh, things that people have to consider and mm-hmm. take the foreground be before art which is money and success and mm-hmm. and we were kind of dancing around the the, the conversation yeah. uh surrounding purity of some kind in art yeah. and, and, and 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 this seems to be a recurring theme in your thought and and you, you left the acad and the academic world in this talk that 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 I listened to on YouTube of yours you contrasted this, the kind of sanctimonious or the, 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 beautiful purity of being someone who dedicates their lives to philosophy and reading and writing. And then you went to work for David Letterman and you were exposed to the, the, the bare kind of flexing of power. Yeah, I was. And then we made mention of John Searle's, uh, Exposed, oh, misdeeds. wicked,
1: wicked character. Yeah, Searle was a famous
0: professor uh, at Berkeley, and he's, he's still been stripped. Alive. He's in his nineties. Yeah, but he's been stripped of his emeritus yeah. and of his office, and all of this for that very similar wielding of power. Right, that has nothing to do with the beauty of the de- purity of dedicating your life to knowledge, right. but with like abusing your stature to take advantage of young women. Yes, and you witness the same thing in Hollywood, and it seems that this, again, we have to kind of strip this dichotomy of the camps mm-hmm. um, that there doesn't seem to be. And then I said yesterday, I was like, actually, there's not so much purity here in Bombay Beach because everyone's fighting over who can get the the buy a house here. Mm-hmm. And uh, and and as much as we try and decommodify our what the project here we have no tickets we have no art for sale we try and make it as non-hierarchical as possible and yet capitalism rears its head in the form of you know having to buy a house and the property values and people you know playing the real estate game so it seems that uh, as much as we look for purity it, it it, it doesn't exist. Yeah. And, and yeah, should we right. give up on that? Or what should be our relationship to our search for some sort of pure creative expression or thought or philosophy that is actually, uh, privileges the things that actually matter?
1: Yeah. Well, so here's how I tend to look at it. That I try to avoid hurting people and lying to people as much as I can. And that's the sort of purity. And that's what I object to in Hollywood because like like you could like when I was at Letterman there was a ton of slut shaming about Monica Lewinsky. And the reason why Dave was doing that was because it made the audience laugh and it got ratings, and and at the same time on on Jay, who was our rival, who was at that point was beating us, um, he was like a couple of days after the people killed themselves in the Heaven's Gate cult, Jay had actors pretending to be them, cracking jokes that they're up in their spaceship and they're sad that they can't have sex because they castrated themselves. And this is a cruel thing to do about people who unfortunately killed themselves and have family members and so forth, to to mock them on TV. Um, and the reason he's doing it is to get ratings and to make the audience laugh, and, and that keeps him on the air. It means the show can sell sponsorships, commercials. So that's the case for purity. Is it I want to avoid situations where I do that. But it's it's impossible to entirely avoid them. And in fact, if you entirely avoid them, there's a there's a saying in the Talmud if you're if you're kind to the cruel you will ultimately end up being cruel to the kind. So the only way to avoid a world of cruelty is to have some degree of engagement with the world. And that can involve not being cruel to the cruel, but maybe being tough, <laughs> tough to the cruel. Like saying to John Searle, I know it's going to hurt your feelings, but we're going to send you home because you abused those women, and he's like, "But, but I'm going to feel really bad. I I, 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 you're you're causing pain to me, and we have to be like, well, we shouldn't be gleefully causing pain to this elderly professor, but we have to send him home because he did something wrong, and we want to send a message that you cannot treat." treat your graduate students as your personal harem like that's very disrespectful to them and it's going to hurt them and it's going to make their future lives worse so i think i think you you can't get rid of the aspiration um to not bully but at some point you you do have to engage with the world um it, it, we were talking about judaism earlier and there's a there's a there's a, a midrash about the patriarchs, which I quite like, which is um, that the, the founder of Judaism mythologically was Abraham. And he's associated with love. Um, and then he his son was uh, Isaac. And he's associated with discipline and awe. Um, so... Uh, how do I connect that to purity like he's associated Abraham is more like make everything as loving as you possibly can and then Isaac is sort of like watch out that you don't make any mistakes when you do that and the the dynamic the dynamic constellation of those two things is is the patriarch Jacob um And he's associated with building institutions. And I think basically, and Heidegger got it right, like you should have an aspiration to purity and you should have an aspiration to effectiveness. And you should try to build and participate in institutions where both of those aspirations are honored. That's the best answer I can give you, Tao. I'm sorry.
0: No, it's good. I'm just... (sighs) going back to the beginning and, and admitting a a contradiction in my, on the one hand, yes, I fetishize these markers of, you know, maybe oversimplified markers of intelligence, uh, like the educations from these fancy institutions. But the, 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 the stronger instinct in me is my kind of anarchist anti-authoritarian side which I didn't end up inheriting from my parents I think uh, ironically and paradoxically but um, it doesn't seem a coincidence to me that we've talked about these en- enmeshed in these 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 very dominant institutions be they you know UC Berkeley where you get elevated to the position of power like John Searle did or Hollywood Or religious institutions that, you know, we don't have to get into how much they've exploited their power to take advantage of the, of the, the weak, um, you know, Catholic church, then the, all the whole scandals around the, what the priests have, have, have been doing for centuries now with young boys and Mm -hmm. girls. And it seems to be built in to. Institutions to create these hierarchies that make it really easy to abuse power, and it seems at odds with a progressive worldview to embrace those institutions. And you called me out on it for fetishizing the 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 Ivy League schools, but um, it seems that I could should also call you out on. We have to not embrace, it seems like the religions are, uh, have baked in these hierarchies and I don't know how we can square embracing them with a, 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 a desire to stand up for the oppressed you know like even and and even we touched on it in Israel like it seems like there is there are, there are all these institutions that as progressive people we should be fighting against instead of joining maybe i don't know this is is it's it's a big topic and i don't necessarily have a question built into it if any of this sparks uh
1: well idea one thing i think is really important in any institution is something like a couple things. Transparency, like how they spend their money should be on the internet. We should be able to find it out. Yeah. Um, uh, a system of anonymous whistleblowing should be rewarded. There has to be a situation, there has to be a system in place where if you know something bad is happening, you can drop an anonymous dime on whoever's doing it And there needs to be something along the lines of what the police sometimes have as an internal affairs division. People who are institutionally separate and who their career advancement is tied to bringing down bad people in the institution that they're policing. So I think those three things go a long way to fighting a natural... um, uh, Bad tendency in religion. Do you know who uh, in, Adam in Curtis all is? Adam Curtis. Yeah, documentary filmmaker. filmmaker? Yeah, he's terrific.
0: I listened to him on a podcast yesterday and he said the mistake we keep making is thinking that we can just weed out the bad people instead of finding the problems in the institution. So if we, if we just call out Harvey Weinstein, if we don't question the institution that makes Harvey Weinstein possible... Arresting him doesn't stop the next Harvey Weinstein from uh, from appearing. And so,
1: what's his suggestion?
0: That our job should be to tear down institutions rather than tear down individuals for being bad. Like the the the, the, the idea that it's the bad actors is 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 so m- I guess limiting.
1: I, I'm suggesting a third thing, which is not tearing down institutions, but changing them and including. Um. Sort of the internal watchdog committees in the institution, like I don't understand. Does that work
0: with the police?
1: Better than when there wasn't one. Yeah. Because so the, when when people say like like I I want to be sort of concrete, like let's say we're upset about um, give me an issue you're upset about. <laughs>
0: Yeah, let's say police uh, brutality and okay. Violence.
1: So you're upset about police brutality. Well, I don't see any way to do something about that better than passing a law against police brutality and enforcing it, and having an institution in place that, like, um, gives a gigantic um, getting rid of the
0: police up. is not is not something that appeals to you.
1: Oh, I've never heard of a society like. Like I think, I think like supposing, supposing we're, we're an anarchist commune and we have a kitchen and somebody is always leaving his dishes in the sink and not cleaning them up and somebody else says, let's call her Roberta and the call, the guy who makes, um, the, uh, who leaves the mess Frank. And Roberta says, "Frank, you're being a complete asshole. Uh, leaving the dishes here, and if you keep doing it, we're gonna kick you out of the anarchist commune." She's being police. Yeah. So I don't see any way to have a bunch of people coordinate actions at, without um, laws and police, honestly. Or like you know, take a more serious example, like. Like, somebody moves to uh, Bombay Beach, and people start to notice that um, his kids are bruised. They are ex- expect, they're suspecting him of um, of beating his kids. That's bad. We don't want to let that happen. Like, you could call the police. You could have a, a local intervention. But then the local intervention, for my money, is police under another, another name. So, so, yeah, I guess I'm pro-police. I just think the police have to be, uh, uh, you know, the obvious mistakes that police can make have to be uh, uh, policed.
0: (laughs) Yeah, In the same way that
1: mob justice needs to be policed. Like, I'm no fan of mob justice because mob justice can... My dad was a defense attorney. I mean, mob justice can do terrible things.
0: Certain institutions... I'm just wondering if certain institutions have more room for purity and authenticity and and expression versus others seem to have baked in the more hierarchy hierarchical the institution the more uh institutions build in power that can be wielded from what by one individual over another i
1: agree i think there should be checks and balances i think the founders were right i think there should be transparency uh i think uh like like the idea that um a hereditary monarch seems a extremely stupid and unsuccessful idea. <laughs> I absolutely. I think we can definitely look at institutions and discuss which ones are more likely to cause violence and oppression and which ones are less likely. I think the idea of human beings dwelling with no institutions at all. I I don't I don't believe in that. I don't know if I necessarily understand it. Like yeah. I don't know what that looks like.
0: What about hierarchy? Do you think hierarchy is important? Well, yeah because um like is there voluntary hierarchy that well yeah i mean that's what
1: i was going to say is like let's say um let's say i need medical care i would like to get the medical care from someone who knows how to do it um and then I would like society to signal to me in some reasonably reliable way <laughs> who knows how to do it versus yeah. who's just hoping to make a quick buck off of my misery. <laughs> right. um, so that's a form of hierarchy. Um, I, I don't... I Yeah, so... Uh, yeah, this, some kind of hierarchy is important. I mean, it's probably provisional and contextual, but I think there should be some kind of hierarchy.
0: Yeah. And anyway, just... I like- mean, there
1: doesn't need to be a hierarchy for, like... Like kissing, if I want to kiss someone, I want it to be someone I love. I don't want to go to the government and say, "Well, who has a PhD in kissing?" and I'll only kiss such a person. That's foolish. That's applying hierarchy in a situation that doesn't make sense. Um, so there's many things where like everybody is good enough at them, <laughs> at it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if But we have needs.
0: hierarchy in the person that. I don't is know if anyone attractive. needs
1: remedial. I don't know if anyone needs remedial kissing, but but I would say uh, many important things. I'm a complete egalitarian. Um, And and I do think that people who are deciding, I'm going to only date someone because everyone else thinks that person is hot, I think that's a silly way to live your life. I mean, I'm not going to tell you how to live your life, uh, but I think that's a silly way to live your life. But there are other things where um, people seem to be better or worse and if it's something really important, it'd be nice to have some kind of a sticker so you can identify who's better and who's worse. Yeah, is that wrong?
0: No, I think. Does that's that right. make me
1: un- uh, just, anarchist?
0: No, I just, I, I just, I here we, we'll just bring it back here as the final uh, topic. We're in Bombay Beach. It's uh, at its best. I think of it as a prefigurative space in which we can uh, witness everything that could possibly go wrong uh did go wrong here Mm -hmm. in a way we, we the 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 issues that are we're faced with as a as a global as 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 Earthlings have been made most salient here, mm-hmm. uh, climate issues, pollution issues, socioeconomic issues of inequality and lack of you know running out of resources and polluting you know the the, the pollution that has uh, been the result of of uh, you know all the agricultural runoff and chemicals that have destroyed this body of water. Mm-hmm. It's all come to a head here. Yeah, and 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 then you you come here, and institutions have broken down, and there's an opportunity in a really interesting way, because mm-hmm. there's no there's very little uh, very little hierarchy here, uh, besides you know and 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 we are, like I said earlier, we are faced with certain realities that take away this ideal. But we have this little square that has no traditional police or government. Um, there's a, the possibility of privileging imagination and new ways of doing things, Mm -hmm. new ways of doing education. You saw Mars college yesterday, you know, kind of setting up new structures that are based on new ideas and it's small enough to be able to do that. And, uh, so it's just an interesting Petri dish in which we can try things.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, think, I think there's a lot of problems with hierarchy. And one of the problems with hierarchy is... Um, well, I, I think these are probably conceptually related. One is... People... Like there's, a, there's, a, there's an organism called a tunicate that has a, a free-floating swimming po- stage in its life and then a point where it attaches itself to a rock... And when it attaches itself to a rock, it absorbs its own brain because it has no further need of it. And one of the problems with hierarchy is that people find their position of, of power and then stop thinking. And yeah, just... people
0: joke about that being like tenure, right?
1: Yes, yes, that is a joke about tenure. Uh, by the way, I, I learned this is by far underselling how weird the tunic it is, but that's a conversation for another time. Um, it has a stage in its life where five of them get together and exchange genetic material and some weird hive mind. It's a very interesting creature, uh, a long-lost cousin of ours. Um, so that's a one problem of hierarchy, um, that people have a tendency to just sort of grab a position, exact rent on the position, stop thinking, and just use it to tyrannize over the people below them. That's definitely true. And another problem is that... Um, and this is maybe a problem with all institutions is that people have a tendency to get trapped in a local maximum. The idea being that, um, it's pretty good here and all the ways we could change it will make things worse, more inconvenient, more troublesome. But what we don't realize is that there's a much, much, much better way to do things. But any way towards that requires going through some grief, some agita, some surus. Um, and, and that's the, the, case that people talk about the, um, the QWERTY keyboard on the k- typewriter, which was adopted because the machines were, were getting jammed. So they needed to put in a keyboard that would slow people down. Well, the machines don't get jammed anymore, but the sunk costs of retraining everyone who learned how to type on the QWERTY keyboard means we'd have to go through this period of grief, uh, to switch it to a more rational keyboard like the, the Dvorak keyboard. So I think, yeah, there's certainly like anarchism has a lot going for it. And one thing is, it's like you say, it helps people get out of these these ruts of thought and imagine new possibilities.
0: And and so, where have you landed? And we we've very loosely talked about we've we've stayed in the realm of ideas much mm-hmm. more than in uh, the biography here. But I am curious where you're at in your life right now and thinking about these things. How you you've now had success and you've got your PhD. You've had a successful TV career. You've now have a little more freedom to d- do new things. Where are you at? What do you What most excites you in the realm of the intersection of art and philosophy and and entertainment?
1: Well, what really excites me right now is good television. Like I'd like to do good television that will wake people up and help people imagine new possibilities. So that excites me a lot. Um,
0: Are there examples of that that you would point people to?
1: Oh, yes. Better Call Saul. Yeah. fantastic. It's a fantastic show. Better Call Saul. Fargo is a fantastic show. Uh, Severance I thought was a great show. So I think there's a lot of room. Um, uh, the Simpsons, honestly. Um, so I think the Mad Men. So I think there's a lot of room for... Creating these imaginative storytelling experiences that help people not get bulldozered by our civilization. I think that's possible. And I think the fact that it's now global, that you launch something on Netflix and people watch it in 100 different countries or something, that's really cool. I mean, it's really cool that you could engage in um, the global conversation in that way another thing that's really exciting to me is um i'm working on this this project with Tom Smith uh who runs the Congo Basin Initiative um and, and uh, like it occurred to me i don't know the first person to think this but it occurred to me that like there's so many different kinds of potato but there's only one kind of potato that people in America eat cuz all the other kind of potatoes um never it says monoculture all those other kinds of potatoes never they, they're harder to ship they're harder to transport whatever luck um so so culinarily that's a great loss <laughs> we're losing all these other delicious potatoes um and and in terms of 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 uh, sti- uh what what uh what uh nassam talib calls anti-fragility we're creating a more fragile system because uh it's this monoculture is sub- is more. Sub- are vulnerable to blights um so so i feel that in the world of um story something similar has happened that a handful of stories that happen to be around in northern europe like uh, sleeping beauty happened to make it through the walt disney corporation to the global marketplace and everybody every all kids are getting fed this rather restricted diet of story so what i want to do is i want to go to cameroon and uh work with the baca there um, and get their stories but but make it clear that it's their stories and send the money back to them um, and I'm very excited about that um, so a couple things television uh, this this baca story initiative and and I'll, I I've gotten my feet back into actual philosophy like actually writing things about this is this is what Kierkegaard thought and here's why it's important. And I like that. I like that. I really like, um, I, I, I was really honored. I was really honored. I got invited to the, the, uh, American society of existential phenomenology. And I gave a speech on Heidegger's, um, parmenides. Um, and I was really happy that, that people didn't look at me and say, what a stupid speech on Heidegger's Parmenides! You clearly don't understand it, but they, they were quite, um, uh, Willing to engage with what I had to say, and that that felt great, and and I'd like to do more of that. Uh,
0: in closing, can you tell the story, which I've spent a lot of time thinking about? Because at first I thought it was just clever and 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 funny, and then I think it's, I think it, it actually is also deep, and maybe those things go hand in hand more often than 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 is obvious. But um, about the Buddha going into the towns and allowing people to ask only one question.
1: Yeah, that's a fabulous story by uh, Raymond Smullyan, of whom we are both fans. Um, So the the story, as Smullyan tells it, is that the Buddha, who was a a world-historical sage in northern India about 2,500 years ago, uh, had achieved enlightenment, and he knew the answer to everything. So what he decided to devote the rest of his human existence on earth to was to just tool around northern India, come to town, and each person could ask a single question and the Buddha would give the answer. So there's this man, Vishnu, who hears that the Buddha is coming and he gives him a lot of anxiety because he doesn't want to waste his question. So he's thinking, 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 and the Buddha's coming to town, he's setting up his you know stand where he's a long line of people answering questions asking questions and he's answering them and vision's like what should I ask him I don't want to blow it I don't want to waste it I don't wanna be a fool so he's thinking what if I ask him how to make a lot of money but what if it turns out that that is not a worthwhile way to spend your life I'll have wasted my question oh that's not good so then he's thinking uh what if I ask him what happens after you die But then he's like, well, I'm going to die, so I'm going to know the answer to that for free. So I'm wasting my question if I do that. And at this point, the sun is going down, and the Buddha and his entourage are leaving town. And it looks like he's not going to get his chance to ask his question. And then he says, ah, I've got it. So he goes running after the Buddha, and he grabs him, and he says, Buddha, what question should I ask, and what is the answer? And the Buddha says... That is the question, and this is the answer.
0: It's so satisfying that little story. and And the more I went home after you told it and was thinking about it, and in addition to just being clever and unexpected and giving you that little jolt of like mm-hmm. fun that a lot of Smollian anecdotes and approaches do, there does seem to be a uh, a deep insight in it, which is that asking and it's it goes back also to your harvard talk i think asking the unanswerable questions is what we should be doing and even if even if they don't have a an obvious answer that's actually maybe a feature not a bug
1: yeah and and to bring back to your worries about hierarchy if one of the thing one of the ways the hierarchy asserts its power is to tell you don't ask those questions. That is a huge red flag and it's a bad
0: institution, right? <laughs> very good, very good. Yeah, and I do think certain institutions have built in a, a, a quashing of questions and we should maybe de emphasize those. Yeah. Maybe we don't get rid of them, but maybe yeah. we take away some power from. from I agree.
1: <laughs> and I also think that at least it should say that on the label. It's like, hey, if you would like to be in our folk music group, we don't appreciate questions like, why are we playing folk music? Take those questions someplace else. We're a folk music group. We meet Tuesdays and Thursdays in the park, and we like folk music. If you don't want to come, you don't have to. Don't interrupt constantly. Why aren't we playing heavy metal? Because we're a folk music group. Okay, but at least say that. At least say that. Don't don't like dance around it. Why aren't we playing heavy metal? And then what people usually do, why aren't we playing heavy metal, is they come up with some weird mystificatory answer. Well, you see, uh, God uh, didn't want us to play heavy metal. Like, No, that's not true. You just don't want to do it. Own up to it and say it. And then people can pick and choose. It's a marketplace of ideas. That's fine.
0: Okay, well, thank you for having this chat with me, Eric. This is wonderful. I hope it's the first of several. And I hope that you're inspired by Bombay Beach to come Very and much so set up some new non-hierarchical institutions of uh of learning and of 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 blending philosophy and art and entertainment and lifestyle and community Yeah, let's and do it. Welcome aboard. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Tao. I appreciate your hospitality. More soon. That was fun.
1: It was fun. I I'm feel like I feel like a different line of questioning and I would have been the anarchist <laughs> you know.